the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. show i am robert steinbuck filling in for dave this monday morning sadly dave has had a death in the family i ask that you all keep dave in your thoughts and prayers folks we have a lot to talk about it's uh, 607 in the morning monday the beginning of the work week for those who are going to work the beginning of the week for those who aren't going to the uh, to work did you know folks that according to the New York Times, your senator, Tom Cotton, and I wouldn't ordinarily say this because I don't like to repeat defamatory comments, but we're not in ordinary times, folks. Your senator, according to the New York Times, that is, is a fascist. Let's be clear. If Tom Cotton is a fascist, then everybody listening to this show is a fascist. Of course, that's not true about either Tom Cotton or Dave's audience. What makes Tom Cotton subject to that allegation by the New York Times, you might ask? Interestingly, it's the fact that the New York Times published his essay, his op-ed, his editorial from an outsider. That's incidentally an op-ed means opposite page editorial, an editorial written by someone who's not on the editorial staff of, in this case, the New York Times. So Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, writes an editorial. The New York Times publishes that editorial. And that makes Tom Cotton a bad guy. And every one of you, the same thing. Why? Because he wrote Common Sense, and if you read that op-ed, you'd agree with it. By the way, we're going to read it right here today. We're going to go over every word in that op-ed. The New York Times recently changed how they show their app page. I read the New York Times on an app. I don't need, I suspect, I think you still can buy the New York Times hard copy, unlike the Dem Gaz, as you know, went totally digital, uh, but not easily, certainly in Arkansas. Uh, in any event, when it went electronic, I've, I preferred that medium, and I went electronic on the New York Times years and years ago. You might ask, why, Rob, are you even reading the New York Times? Bad habits are hard to break, folks. I have been reading the New York Times since quite literally being a kid. That's not a brag. I hope it doesn't sound like one. 
When you hear a brag from me, oh, you'll know it. No, the New York Times has had been the paper of record, meaning it was known to gather the news from all over the country, all over the world, and do so in a competent fashion. It has always been left-leaning, and you knew that when you read it. But it's one thing to read a paper that leans left or leans right, mind you, and and have the ability, as we all do, to screen for that bias versus it being yellow journalism, being pure partisanship. Well, it's moved directly into that zone. It is a purely partisan paper at this point. So I was, I scrolled through the New York Times and recently, since Trump was elected, they started presenting way more editorials and op-eds. And it used to be you just scroll up and down. And so you'd get to the, to the middle of the scroll on the top stories page and there was editorial after editorial after editorial. All from the from the paper anti-Trump and the op-eds almost invariably oh almost invariably anti-Trump and it got to the point that you would read the times or at least you would scroll down the app and all you would see would be editorial and you would say wait am i reading an opinion paper or am i reading a newspaper and the former seemed to be the case I gather they received so many complaints about this fact that they changed the app. So now when you scroll down, you get around halfway and there's one opinion piece and then you have to scroll right to left or left to right, whatever it may be, to get the opinions. And as an aside, the functionality of that aspect of the app isn't so great. So as you try to scroll left to right or right to left to get to the editorials, the commentary, it's a little herky-jerky. I tell you all of this, excessive detail and background, for the purpose of saying that when they moved to this new format, only recently, I decreased my reading of their editorials for two two reasons. One... They were less prominent, thank goodness. And two, it was a little bit harder to access them. And so the first I heard of Tom Cotton's editorial or op-ed was when it was criticized. When I went to the editorial area of the app, I did not see Tom Cotton's editorial. Now, the suspicious side of me might suggest that it was it was because it was somehow hidden. I don't know whether that's true or not. But I do know as a fact, I hadn't read it before the controversy developed a day later, mind you. It was not any significant time period. So I thought to myself, oh boy, here we go. Maybe somebody stepped in it in the senator's office. Let's be clear, no such case. I've seen previously where I won't get into the details at the moment, but a local mm, government employee in academia 
uh, wrote something that was distributed widely by him, which garnered a lot of criticism, and in the end, he left his position. Meaning, it is certainly possible to write something foolish and then suffer some serious consequences thereafter. But that's not what happened here, folks. No, sir, no, ma'am. Tom Cotton, as it turns out, wrote a perfectly reasonable op-ed. Indeed, the most incendiary, and that's just a relative comment, by the way, aspect of the op-ed was the title written by the New York Times. And the title was fine. My point simply to say is, if you would pick any aspect of it to suggest there's an issue, it was a part not written by the new, not written by the senator. But even that part, I must be frank and fair to the New York Times, was perfectly acceptable. Particularly given when you read headlines all the time in the New York Times and elsewhere that are done intentionally. To grab the attention of the reader. So if you say, well, that was a bit overstatement, that was excessive, or at least you say that was, shall we say, inflammatory. Well, to a point, that's the purpose of a headline, is it not? Now, you can go overboard and and therefore be subject to criticism. But you must recognize that the zone of appropriateness for a headline is broader than the text. And so, no, the New York Times didn't mess up the headline either. That was fine. If you understand how headlines are written, if you understand the purpose of a headline, if you understand what a headline looks like, if you have ever read a newspaper in your life. But the New York Times has devolved to a nursery school. A group of children with very little experience who get upset when their chocolate milk isn't served cold at exactly 11.45 a.m. And this is the problem, folks. This is the environment in which we live today. We live in an environment in which the most delicate daisy, the biggest whiner, the crybaby, determines the standard for what we are permitted to do. We have turned the notion of free speech on its head. No speech is free. And you are subject to the most severe sanction if you don't subscribe to the woke wisdom of the lefty, Antifa-loving, crybaby, delicate daisy out there. This is the environment in which we work. And by work, I mean live. I don't mean go to work. Sure, that's a context. I mean something far more broad than that. I read recently, don't worry folks, if you think I have finished with the cotton op-ed, I have not. 
In about two minutes, we're going to go to a break, and I'm going to tease you on the op-ed. We're going to read it when we come back. In the meanwhile, let me tell you about the environment. There was a professor, I forget where, I want to say North Carolina, that's almost invariably wrong, who wrote something on his personal Facebook page. And they went after him. Who went after him? The woke mob went after him. So why do I bring this up? Now, to the credit of the school, apparently they wrote a statement saying, well, we don't like it. This is against our values. By the way, our values. I love how these unelected bureau hacks determine, quote, the values of an institution. A professor is a core component of an institution. Does he not have values? And if so, are they not part of the values of the institution if they are inconsistent with the woke wisdom of the unelected bureau hacks? Well, which are the, quote, values of the institution? Maybe those bureau hacks whose job is to push paper and pay the bills should shut up about their, quote, values because they are imbuing our public institutions with their personal policy preferences. But to their credit, these woke leftists said, well, it seems like this is protected by the First Amendment. Good! Good! Some lefty recognized the First Amendment. In and of itself, that's remarkable. But they said, oh, but let us know if he did something in the classroom that violated your rights. Meaning, on the one hand, they say, oh, this person has a First Amendment right. And on the other hand, start reporting to the Stasi any wrongdoing, because we're going after him. That's what we're doing, folks. I want you to think about that point as Heidi takes us to break, and we'll come back with the cotton op-ed. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning about 624, I see, on the clock next to me in the morning. Folks, I have teased for the first part of the show the Tom Cotton op-ed. Now we get into it. We're going to have a break uh, right about the bottom of the hour, right about 630. I'll try to get most, if not all, of the Tom Cotton op-ed in prior thereto. But I dare say that my own personal commentary thereon might prevent the full disposition of, or exposition, excuse me, folks, uh, of that piece prior to the break. And if so, needless to say, we'll carry it forward. All right. So the Tom Cotton op-ed titled, By the New York Times... Send in the troops. Okay. Okay, I told you already. I don't have a problem with that. Do you have a problem with that? New York Times has a problem with it now. Oh, not then. But now that the woke crowd got, got to them, oh, now they have a problem. But let's talk about the substance. Let's talk about what the good senator from Arkansas actually wrote. What was so controversial, what was so to quote the New York Times Editorialist Michelle Goldberg, what was so fascist, according to New York Times. Can you believe it? But this is what the left does, folks. There is no more fascism because everything is fascism. There are no more Nazis because everyone are Nazis. There is no more 
right white supremacy because everyone is a white supremacist, according to the New York Times. That's the problem. They dilute the meaning of these words because all they do is hurl these aspersions at conservatives whenever they don't like something that a conservative says. It's been going on for years. They've been calling conservatives racist for years. And for years, racists would... Racists. You see what they've done? For years, conservatives would cower in response. No more folks. No more folks. Because conservatives are not racists. Are there racists out there? Yes. Are some racists conservatives? No doubt. Are some racists not conservatives? For sure. But are conservatives racists inherently? Absolutely not. And when someone casts that aspersion, you respond. You respond. I wrote an article about this. It's got to be 10 years ago. An academic article published in a law journal from Harvard Law School entitled, guess what? Racist. That's the title of the piece. Racist. So I've pointed this out for years that the lefties have tried to quiet conservatives by calling them these types of names. And we're not going to take it. Part of the reason that Donald Trump was elected was because conservatives said, wait a second, wait a second, we're not racists. And we don't have to sit around and listen to that. Wait a second, wait a second. We believe in God. And we're not going to be ashamed of that fact. Wait a second. Wait a second. We follow the proscriptions and prescriptions of the Bible to the best of our abilities. And we're not going to be embarrassed by that fact. That's what conservatives started to do more recently and started to say, more importantly, more recently. And that is part of the reason that Donald Trump got elected. Because the liberals kept telling the, the, I did it again. I did it again. The liberals kept telling the conservatives they're racists. I almost said that in reverse. It would be meaningless, but nonetheless. Folks, be proud to be a conservative. This country is overall conservative. That's right. This is a conservative country. That believes in conservative ideals. And we will continue to be that way. And that's why it's so important that we speak up. In any event, let me look at the time. It's about two minutes before the bottom of the hour. I will not be able to get into the whole op-ed, but I will give you the beginning. And then we will continue after the break. Tom Cotton writes as follows. This week, rioters have plunged many American cities into anarchy, recalling the widespread violence of the 1960s. First paragraph. Anything objectionable there? Anything inaccurate there? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right? So we start with a perfectly benign comment, historical, reflecting on the realities of today, and comparing them to the realities of yesterday. <clears throat> Tom Cotton continues, New York City suffered the worst of the riots Monday night as Mayor Bill de Blasio stood by while Midtown Manhattan descended into lawlessness. Well, we know that's true. 
right? We know, first of all, we know de Blasio is an absolutely incompetent government official, bureau hack, elected nobody. New York City thinks so. The Democrats that elected Bill de Blasio think so themselves. He was a laughingstock when he ran for president. He got no appreciable votes. Tom Cotton continues, bands of looters roved the streets, smashed and emptied hundreds of businesses. Some even drove exotic cars. The riots were carnivals for the thrill-seeking rich as well as the, for the thrill-seeking rich as well as other criminal elements. I understand some of the syntax there, but otherwise, the point is true, right? There were riots, and part of the riots were the fact that people were looting. Because nothing says social justice better than I need a new pair of Nikes, right? That's social justice. Hey, here's some social justice. Give me a size 10. Folks, I've gotten through only two paragraphs. We're going to take a break and we're going to continue right after these messages. This is a Dave Ellswick show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. It is 635 in the very early a.m. Folks, we have been talking about the Tom Cotton op-ed that has resulted, incidentally, I've yet to discuss this aspect of it, the firing of the editorial page editor for the New York Times. Good! Good! Let them eat them their own young, as the phrase goes. Let them destroy themselves with their own wokeness. Good! I have no sympathy for the left destroying the left with their own standards. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. We're going through the op-ed. We're at, I think, the third paragraph. And Tom Cotton continues as follows. Outnumbered police officers encumbered by feckless politicians. Oh, you know who they are! Bill de Blasio, he is the embodiment of a feckless politician. Outnumbered police officers encumbered by feckless politicians bore the brunt of the violence. By the way, we're going to get to the New York Times now self-flagellating apology in a few moments in which they take issue with that. But my question, I'll start the question now. My question is, what's inaccurate about that statement? It said the police officers bore the brunt of the violence. Now, who else was out on the street? There were protesters and there were police officers. Most people are still cabined as a function of the coronavirus. Masses of people were not attacked. Are you saying that the buildings got more of the brunt? The distinction is clear in the writing from the senator that he's talking about which people bore the brunt. Not whether the sidewalk or the pawn shops or the sneaker shops or the TV shops. Is there such a thing as a TV shop? The TV shops bore the brunt. What people bore the brunt? Well, it was invariably the police. Indeed, frankly... The comment by Tom Cotton 
And this is no insult. It's fairly pedestrian, meaning, of course, the police bore the brunt. They were the only ones out there, and they stand between rioters and those in their homes keeping safe. So, of course, they bore the brunt. This is controversial. According to New York Times, it is, folks. Be careful. Up doesn't mean up anymore. Down doesn't mean down. The sky ain't blue and the grass ain't green. Every word needs to be redefined according to the new woke dictionary. We'll go on. In New York State, rioters ran over officers with cars on, uh, on at least three occasions. I gather that's fact. I mean, I mean that sincerely. I have not looked it up, but it seems per- not only perfectly plausible, almost irrefutable that the senator would have written that without having checked on that. So, fact. Next fact. In Las Vegas, an officer is in grave condition after being shot in the head by a rioter. Fact. In St. Louis, four police officers were shot as they attempted to disperse a mob throwing bricks and dumping gasoline. Fact. In a separate incident, a 77-year-old retired police captain was shot to death. This one I saw on television. As he tried to stop looters from ransacking a pawn shop. Fact. This is somebody's granddaddy. A bystander screamed at the scene. So listing of facts. Is that fascist? Well, to the left, facts can be fascist, you see. Because if they don't like the facts, if the facts don't go along with their narrative, then those facts, according to the, to the woke leftists, are fascist. My father, I've told you all many times, during World War II, lived under communist dictatorship. These are the types of behaviors that he described to me. We know that the Soviet Union made up facts and they told you this is what you must believe. People say, well, that's not what happened. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. This is what we are telling you happened. So it happened. Next paragraph. Some elites have excused this orgy of violence in the spirit of radical chic calling it an understandable response to the wrongful death of George Floyd. That's true. It's true, one, that some of the woke mob have outwardly said that acts of violence, acts of looting, are legitimate given what happened to George Floyd. No, they're not. No, they're not. The store owner whose private property is destroyed, whose merchandise is stolen, is not responsible for what happened to George Floyd. And those acts of violence, those crimes, no less the the physical attacks on human beings, innocent human beings, are not justified at all. At all. Oh, there are many on the left that think otherwise. And this is a competing moral claim 
and I do not subscribe to moral relativism, albeit the left does. So they should be perfectly accepting of those moral claims that they disagree with. But they're not when they're conservative, you see. They agree with moral claims with which they they ascribe to, perhaps I should better say, moral claims from other countries that they nonetheless don't engender themselves. But when they come from conservatives, no dice. Those excuses, I continue reading from the op-ed, those excuses are built on a revolting... Here, There you go! It's almost as if I read this before. Those excuses, says Tom Cotton, are built on a revolting moral equivalence of rioters and looters to peaceful law-abiding protesters. That's right! Peaceful law-abiding protesters are doing what they are constitutionally protected in doing. What? Peacefully assembling and engaging in free speech. Two of the six guarantees of the First Amendment. Peaceful assembly and free speech. They are 100% entitled to do that. And I honor and respect those who did that. And by the way, let's be clear. The majority, I dare say the vast majority of those out protesting were peaceful, nonviolent. We need to make that recognition because they were not the majority violent rioters. But there was a significant number, by the way, even the leftist media covered much more of the rioting. Now, one might argue it was more newsworthy, but that's not why the leftist media covered it more. The leftist media covers it more because they look for controversy. So, the rioting occurs. So far, nothing in Tom Cotton's op-ed can be disputed. He continues. A majority who seek to protest peacefully shouldn't be confused with bands of miscreants. Same point that we just addressed and absolutely true. Indisputable indeed. But the rioting, says Tom Cotton, has nothing to do with George Floyd, whose bereaved relatives have condemned violence. Well, and that's the point, folks. You should not group in those peaceful demonstrators with the rioters. And those rioters are not entitled to blanket themselves with the protections of the First Amendment and morality itself as they steal television sets, sneakers, jewelry, break windows. Those events are not legitimate responses and they are not based on, morally that is, what occurred to George Floyd. On the contrary, says Tom Cotton, nihilist criminals are simply out for loot and the thrill of destruction, with cadres of left-wing radicals like Antifa infiltrating protest marches to exploit Floyd's death for their own anarchic purposes. By the way, we'll come back to it. Tom Cotton, excuse me, the New York Times criticized Tom Cotton. Well, we don't know if Antifa was infiltrating protesters. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Here's the thing, yes. We do. We saw them wearing helmets with the Antifa logos on it. There is ample evidence to 
support that claim. Sorry. We know that. Tom Cotton continues. These rioters, if not subdued, not only will destroy the livelihoods of law-abiding citizens, but will also take more innocent lives. Again, that's axiomatic indeed, right? It's definitional. Rioters versus peaceful protesters are creating damage and are injuring and killing people. If you allow that to that behavior to continue, that is the rioting, you will also, therefore, by definition, axiomatically allow them to destroy livelihoods and take innocent lives. What's wrong about that? What's factually nothing, of course, is the answer. Tom Cotton continues, many poor communities that still bear scars from from past upheavals will be set back still further. Well, and this is a reflection on the fact that often is the case that when these riots occur, they occur in neighborhoods, poor communities that are poor communities. And the destruction causes those communities to suffer further. If stores, groceries, supermarkets in poor communities are destroyed, some of them won't come back. History has demonstrated that. And who does that harm? Well, it harms the communities that rely on those outlets. Sorry, these are further facts. Another example of where the left decides that facts they don't like shouldn't be discussed. Folks, we're coming up on another break. Uh, We'll take it in just about a minute. Uh, So let me read you just a sentence more. We'll discuss that. And then we'll continue after the break with the Tom Cotton op-ed. But here's the important point. We see the turning point, indeed, in the op-ed. Tom Cotton says, one thing above all else will... excuse me, folks, will restore order to our streets, an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain, and ultimately deter lawbreakers. Well, that's right, isn't it? Now, you might not agree. Now, I know Dave's listeners do, but one might not agree with showing an overwhelming show of force. Sorry for the double usage of the same word. One might not agree with that. One might prefer the looting, the rioting, the stealing, the destruction. It's morally reprehensible to prefer that. But people do. We know they do. We've heard them outwardly and openly make that claim. But conservatives don't. Tom Cotton doesn't. And he's free to say that. That correct moral point. Folks, I want you to think about that point as we go to a break And we'll come back and finish the Tom Cotton op-ed right after this. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. It's eight minutes till seven in the morning. The sun is now out. It wasn't when I got up, folks. Ooh, that's an early morning to get up for this show. Let me tell you, Heidi does it every single day of the week. Not me. No, sir. In any event. 
we applaud Dave. We keep him in our thoughts and prayers. Incidentally, I ask all of you to do the same. Dave had a death in the family. Uh, uh, obviously, I'll let him talk about that upon his return. Uh, but those are always uh, awful events. And um, we really uh, think about Dave and uh, keep him in our thoughts and prayers. Folks, we're talking about the Tom Cotton op-ed that the New York Times has New York Times has tripped over itself backing away from and we continue reading it for those who have been uh, with us all along and for those who are just joining right now we're in the middle of reading the Tom Cotton op-ed that the New York Times has now disavowed by the way let's be clear what an op-ed is an op-ed stands for opposite page editorial It means they bring in a view, a commentary from an outsider that they don't necessarily share. They are opening up their venue for other people to communicate their views so it's not entirely an echo chamber. Well, that used to be the meaning, by the way. It ain't so much no more. But so it ain't, so it isn't an echo chamber of leftist woke media commentary. So they bring in a conservative who states conservative views and they disavow not the commentary because, of course, they disagree with conservatives. They don't have a conservative bone in their body. It's a bunch of 19-year-olds running around with world views on how things need to be done. They disavow the fact that a conservative was entitled, was permitted, was allowed... To publish his views in their woke leftist media outlet. That's what they're crying about. Not the substance. The fact that the substance was given a venue for publication. Because the left's idea of free speech is Like one hand clapping. The left's idea of free speech is that the left can speak as much as it wants. Not the right. Not conservatives. No, sir. No, ma'am. That's their notion of free speech. It's absolutely tragic. It would be hysterical if it wasn't so tragic. It would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. That the left... Remember, the left is the one that solidified the guarantees of free speech in the 1960s and 70s. Yes, no, folks, conservatives don't deserve credit for it because they didn't do it. They did not do it. The left did it. 60 years ago. That's right. 60 years ago. And they have absolutely abandoned their own ideals and they are eating their young now in the process. Good riddance to the latter. I'm sorry. I have no sympathy for those in the woke leftist media who are now falling over each other to be more virtue signaling. No sympathy at all. We are continuing to read through the um, Tom Cotton op-ed. Incidentally, uh, as you know, at the top of the hour at 7 o'clock, we're going to go to a break Uh, Thereafter, at some point, uh, our good friend Chris Corbett is going to join us in this conversation. Later on in the morning, around 7.30, uh, we're going to have Senator Bob Ballinger 
been joining us uh, for part of the conversation. And we continue right now talking about the Tom Cotton op-ed. And so, as I uh, teased just before our last break, Tom Cotton wrote, one thing above all else will restore order to our streets, an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain, and ultimately deter lawbreakers. But local law enforcement, continuing on, by the way, in the op-ed, but local law enforcement in some cities desperately needs backup. While delusional politicians, uh, a.k.a. Bill de Blasio, uh, while delusional politicians in other cities refuse to do what's necessary to uphold the rule of law. All right. Again, these are facts. What facts are they? Some cities don't have sufficient law enforcement to rebuff and rebut. I don't know which is more appropriate in any event. Uh, these violent rioters. That's a fact. We know that's a fact. And some feckless politicians are not doing what they need to do. Well, we know that as well. Okay? So, again, we are a good portion through, I would dare say probably halfway through the op-ed, and so far, facts, folks! Facts! That's what we have. Facts! But don't you understand? I've said it many times, I'm going to repeat it again now. Facts! That's, that's a foreign word. They don't, the left doesn't have a definition for facts because the left doesn't believe in the notion of truth. There's their truth. You've heard them say it. Well, my truth is, wait, wait, what? My truth? There's truth and there's falsity. There's no my truth and your truth. There's truth and not truth. That's it. But not according to the left. There's my truth. You see, my truth tells me that when I go to the moon, uh, it's made of cheese. That's my Ed- Edward G. Robinson, for those folks that remember that 1940s movie actor. I'm not old enough to have seen it when it was out, but I saw it thereafter. My truth. And my truth. My truth is I can fly. But I try not to uh, test that truth because... Uh, when I jump out of a window once, uh, it'll, I'll be proven incorrect. Folks, this is the problem with the left. There is no objective reality anymore. The reality is when they want something to be the case, it's the case. When they want something not to be the case, it's not the case. Folks, as usual, I have not finished reading the Tom Cotton op-ed that's been now going on for an hour. You can hear the music playing, so I am going to send it over to Heidi, and we'll be back after this break. show i am robert steinbuck filling in for dave this monday morning it's 707 in the morning and we continue our discussion of the tom cotton op-ed on the line we have our good friend 
Chris Corbett. Chris, how are you this early morning? Fantastic. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for the invite. It's always my pleasure. Uh, Our conversations are not only enjoyable, I hope to some informative. Chris' uh, audience, as you know, is both an attorney and a professional engineer. Uh, Those are individually difficult to achieve and when combined, quite rare Chris, you were incidentally, before we get back to the Tom Cotton op-ed, which I know you've read and you've seen the the yeah. inapt criticism thereof, uh, and we're going to continue that conversation, but just to remind me and the audience, what is it? I forgot what you told You're also a patent attorney, which really is just the intersection of being a professional engineer and being an attorney. But you once told me, do you remember what right. the numbers are? Like how many, uh, I don't recall. If I do. How many, huh? I do. I keep up with it. There's... There's 800,000 registered professional engineers in the United States. And how many in Arkansas? And um, in Arkansas, there's 7,000 attorneys in Arkansas. And engineers, I believe there's 6,000. 6,000. And how many attorneys who are professional engineers? We probably don't know that number. Now, that is hard to track. Right. So there's 800,000. Yeah, 800,000 registered PEs in the United States. Right. 1.35 million attorneys in the United States. But I bet you the overlap of that Venn diagram is relatively small. I mean that sincerely. Very small. Very, very small. I think there's three in the state of Arkansas that I know of. Three. And you're are, one of those three. Registered. Yes, sir. That's amazing. That's amazing. I am. Thank you. Thank you for swelling my head up. Man. Well, Damn, you know, Damn, I can't get out the door. For those who haven't seen Chris, he's pretty much got a pumpkin head to begin with. So it's dangerous <laughs> if it swells. What's your hat size? Like, like uh, watermelon? Does it just say watermelon on the inside? <laughs> hey, I love hats. Although you make fun of some of my hats, I love hats. It is... um. Uh, seven and a half. Seven is that big? I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got I mean, to, it. Depends you, on it. Depends on now. If you go Stetson, right? You got a you got an oval hat for Stetson mm. or a round hat. And you, the round hat doesn't fit. It leaves a gap on the by the ears. Oh, interesting. And people know what I'm talking about if they bought Stetson hats. I got to have the oval hat. That's hilarious. Well, you you look good in a hat. You really do. I don't look good. I I think I have too uh, skinny a face for a hat. Uh, Well, I I tried to give you my my English driving hat. I I don't remember. Yeah, did you? you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I, I generally no, don't you're look... making fun of it you're making fun of it my, English, fun of... my English driving it's like a I call it the bro hat I call it the bro hat that's like funny a, kind of a comes down in the front so well I, maybe maybe I was um taken aback by the fact that you wanted me to be your driver <laughs> no no did I misunderstand that <laughs> that's pretty good Rob. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, let's, let's get back to talking you, about uh, the Tom Cotton op-ed because, uh, as you know, no. the New York Times has called Tom Cotton a fascist for the op-ed that he has published with their permission in their newspaper. It's You can't make this up. If you saw this in know, a movie, you would say, well, uh, that's even more ridiculous than a yeah. superhero movie, right? Well, I, I tried. So I, when I first heard about it, I wanted to go read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I clicked on it. It was taken down. The New York Times had oh, a... Oh, that's hilarious. Maybe a, that's why I missed like, it initially. We've taken... Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so they had taken it down. Right. I thought, okay, surely Tom wow. Cotton's got it up on his senator's It's back page. on the New York Times he, site now, but with a big intro oh, that we're going to... You and I are going to cover later in the show. Yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, and, and 
so I think his, his point is well taken. Um, sitting in the troops, right? And he named it. If you yeah. can't, if the local police can't handle it, we need to stop the, the property damage. Well, well, let me interrupt you there, and, Chris, um, because you're yeah. exactly at the point in the op-ed, as you likely know, having listened to every moment of today's show, no doubt, uh, already, uh, that that's exactly in the op-ed where we're at. And so let me uh, okay. read uh, the next paragraph, and then you and I are going to dissect that uh, to determine whether or not the woke left media that has uh, decided that their faces are going to melt when they hear the truth, uh, whether there's any basis uh, to their delicate daisy emotions. So the next paragraph <laughs> reads as follows. The pace of looting and disorder may fluctuate from night to night, but it's past time to support local law enforcement with federal authority. Some governors have mobilized the National Guard, yet others refuse. And in some cases, rioters still outnumber the police and guard combined. In these circumstances, the Insurrection Act authorizes the president to employ the military, quote, or any other means, end quote, in, quote, cases of insurrection or obstruction of the laws, end quote. So you have exactly hit that point, which is the apex of the op-ed. Tom Cotton says... Uh, for those environments in which local law enforcement is insufficient or local politicians are feckless, a.k.a. Bill de Blasio, then the federal government can step in with federal police without, authority. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And there's some historical precedents to this, Rob. You know, President Bush um, uh, nationalized the the uh, National Guard then took over and said, hey, we got to stop the riots in L.A. in 91. Exactly. So there was nothing. They needed help. They, yeah. help. they needed help. This isn't, this isn't something that Bush just made up. I mean, the Trump, Trump made, up, made yeah. up. Right. Yeah. And um, or so, cotton, I'm sorry. Now, right. And then, and yeah. And, and this is not this is not saying that he didn't disagree with the movement or have Americans have the right to protest. Uh, they just don't have the right to, to commit crimes. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Chris, I'm a bit confused. As you've known me now for many years, I am often confused. Yeah. It's my general state of being. And my confusion right now is you're saying that social justice doesn't equal a new pair of sneakers? That I stole from a exactly. store that I broke a glass window in? I'm confused, yeah, it's, Chris. It's, yeah. And... um um you know, people are rightfully angry. People are mad, okay? But there's other ways, productive ways of if I, you know, of attacking this. You don't, I mean, no or, pun confronting this issue, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, um, that that's where we're at. And yeah. I think I think we're getting there. I read the newspaper this morning, and it said that um, the the protesters are. The curfew was lifted in a few towns because the protesters were being peaceful. That's how things get done. Peaceful protest. Indeed. And and as I said earlier in the show, most of the protests are peaceful. So let's give credit where credit is due. And as you aptly right. point out, people are understandably upset. And we're going to talk about that part more as well. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh-huh. so far, we're halfway through plus the Tom Cotton op-ed. And there's nothing factually inaccurate and there's nothing particularly incendiary unless you don't believe in federal law enforcement and by believing, right. didn't, didn't one go ahead sorry 
This is one of the editors quit over this deal? Oh, like, no, no, no. No, he got fired. I what mean, they he... may have used another oh, word, but he got fired. Oh. They said, you see that, that box? That makes more sense. Oh, yeah. Okay. Listen, they okay. are I eating. I'm trying to figure out. I haven't. Yeah. They're eating their young, so, okay, Chris. So, this yeah. is what okay, happens. So basically, okay. Go ahead. So, so the New York Times, the liberal rag that it is, can I call it that? I, I just did. read it. A little rag. Okay. So, um, in, a, in an environment, an atmosphere where we want transparency, where we want free discourse, they're firing a guy for for a, a United States senator putting out his opinion. And this is not a, this is not I should say not a normal U.S. senator. This is an Army Ranger, a veteran, a Harvard law grad, right? I mean, let's listen to what he's got to say, and not and and not criticize it trying to I mean if they could fire him they would, right? No, they fired the so you're saying they fired the editor. Exactly. Wow. Isn't that remarkable? Where's the free discourse? Where's the free discourse? Well, no, Chris, the, it takes me back to the Yeah. Chris, free discourse, don't you understand? To the left, free discourse means which leftist or far leftist opinion do you have? Let's debate the difference between left and far left. That's free discourse to the editorial page of the New York Times and the other Uh-oh. woke leftists. That's what they mean by free yeah. discourse. As I said a few moments ago in the previous segment, the left is the one that created the free speech movement and gave meaning to the First Amendment, and they have absolutely abandoned their ideals in- entirely. You. You just went deep. Did you? Are you mentioning New York Times v. Sullivan? Is that what? You, well, you go you ahead. With that? You, you yeah. mention it. Yeah, outstanding. Tell, tell outstanding. the audience one what, the what premier, that means. Yeah, one of the premier legal cases that you learn in law school, New York Times v. Sullivan. And what and, did um, what did that teach us? Free speech, That's right? right? But uh, well, and well, in the newspaper they have a protected status, mm-hmm. right? That's right. The newspaper has a protected status, and therefore they they have this uh, uh, protection in the law to publish opinions. And this is the irony, and, right? They get extra protection right. uh, because they are supposed to be gathering and disseminating the news. And what happens right. is, and check this out. Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, you got and the irony. The irony of this that they would try. Tonight, well, they, they've tried, and they, they this guy went out on them, got fired, but to censor an editorial uh, opinion letter from a United States senator, and they didn't, they don't want to publish it, and an editorial uh, it, letter to... or uh, op-ed uh, to be more accurate, right, op-ed, right, uh, an op-ed that uh, subscribes to a view embodied by the majority of America. Let's be clear. The majority of America right. agrees with Tom Cotton's op-ed. We know that. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. We know do. that. You know, right. it's really, it, it, right. it, it's remarkable, Chris, <clears throat> how the left is willing to discard the views of one of the most credentialed U.S. senators, by the way, and oh, most yeah. of America. Go ahead. Well, yeah, we'll just, okay, so is this is this a guy... That uh, uh, ran for you know ran for United States Senate just on a whim. No, he had some structure. He had some. His whole life has been about this. He decided he wanted to go to uh, Harvard Law School. 
And um, out of Dardanelle, Arkansas, he, he went. He joined up when he graduated college. He went and, and joined up with the Army, wanted to be out there on the front lines. And this is a guy that's really got his um, service to the American people out in the front. Do you and, know offhand? Uh, I don't know. I do, he, you know do you know offhand? Where did he go I, undergrad? Did he go to Fayetteville? Uh, that's a good question. Let me look that up. Okay. I'll find well, out for you. We'll get back to that. You look yeah, that up. Right. Heidi's going to send us to a break, and we're going to come back and continue to talk about the uh, Tom Cotton op-ed. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, a little after 7.30, we're going to be joined by State Senator Bob Ballinger. Uh, Chris will continue on through the show with us, and uh, we will continue our conversation. Uh, so let's take a break now, Heidi, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this Monday morning at 725. We've only have a, we only have a few minutes before we get to the break at the bottom of the hour. We have on the line with us right now Chris Corbett. Chris, by the way, did you find out where Tom Cotton went uh, undergrad? I did. He went to that college up north. Meaning? <laughs> Harvard. <laughs> Say again? No, he's undergrads in, undergrads in Harvard and in Harvard Law Grad. Oh, wow. Oh, I he didn't realize to, he also went to Harvard went right out of Dardanelle. Wow. Yeah, he went, to right, he went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard Law right out of Dardanelle. I think it, I read in a piece somewhere that he had a goal, ninth or 10th grade, that he wanted to go to Harvard Law School, and he obtained that goal. He worked hard. Indeed. And did it. Good for yeah, him. did it. Yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding. He, you yeah, know, he, it's mm-hmm. difficult for the left when they deal with someone like Tom Cotton, because they like right. to call conservatives a uh, bunch of Cro-Magnum, knuckle-dragging uh, ignoramuses. Uh, and they right. are confronted with, yet again, facts that belie their descriptions. And right. this, this is their problem. They, they have narratives that they believe because facts don't matter. Narrative matters. Right? This is what happened under communism. There were narratives. Oh, Rob, that, yeah. that's right. That's exactly right. And, and you're on the cusp of what I, and I'm leading into just restricting free speech, restricting uh, what professors can teach in college, restricting what – and it's, a, it's, just, it's just liberal agenda, and it's out there liberal newspapers, liberal news channels, and, they, and they're restricting content. It's almost like the, the irony of this thing is, is wild to me yeah, that right. we can't have this free discourse and an educated discussion with logical reasons um, with a goal in mind. The goal, all I see so far right now, some of these protesters, is the goal is, is um, fear. The goal is yeah. destruction of property. Oh, or a new um, pair of sneakers. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, nothing so, says that, nothing you, says reform like Nike's size ten. <laughs> that's right. right. So if yeah, and if and so so can can language and speech across uh, the line become criminal? Yeah, it, it can at some point when you're when you issue a threat um, that can um, cause somebody some um, you know immediate immediate fear of harm, and um, so. Yeah, it's this this protest is is going good places, I think, but it's got to be toned down and not be destructing uh, lives, uh, killing people, destructing property. It's got to be done in a peaceful manner if it's going to have an effect. Um, and, and if that's their goal, and if it's going to be consistent with our law, 
That is, you don't get to make up the law as you see fit. That's That's the irony here. What these protests have stemmed from the fact that uh, uh, an illegal, inappropriate level of force was used on a criminal uh, defendant, or uh, I'm not suggesting right. he was a criminal. Right. I have no idea what he did or didn't do. George Floyd, that is. Uh, meaning mm-hmm. someone who was under arrest. That's what I simply mean. Alleged, right? Yeah. Alleged, right, right. Yeah. Meaning mm-hmm. anybody who's under arrest is is has now been implicated in the criminal justice system, but he may indeed be innocent, uh, as we've seen uh, in criminal proceedings, or he may be guilty. Whatever the case may and he's presumed, let me just be clear, he's presumed innocent, in fact. But in any event, this guy's right. Uh, under arrest, and an illegal, improper level of force was used on him. And the response is, in part, or certainly entirely by these rioters, to use an illegal, improper level of force. The irony is dripping. It is so palpable. (laughs) Yes. Right? And and here's here's the bottom line, Rob. Mm -hmm. I would tell you this, as a white male do what the police says to do okay obey the commands don't snatch your wrist away from me you want to hold court do it with me in a courtroom yeah. you want to say something let's say it to the judge okay well, and that goes to people that's white black purple brown red do not do not hold court out there in the street that's and, a, um, that's such a good point we, And one that comes from a smart lawyer uh, such as yourself who understands where the appropriate response needs to take place. And and by the way, my um, uh, my father taught me this when I was a kid. And as you point out, I'm a white male and my father taught me this. Think about that. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. It is 736, and we have on the line Chris Corbett. And joining us at this moment is Senator Bob Ballinger. Bob, how are you? I'm doing really good. Doing really good. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing well, thank you. So we've got three attorneys on the line, and that's always a dangerous thing. Uh, You are the only practicing Republican attorney in the uh, state Senate, in fact. And so you bring a unique perspective to the conversation in general, and of course, here so today. As you uh, likely heard, we've been talking about the Tom Cotton op-ed, but let's bring it out a little bit more broadly and just talk about what's going on today uh, across this country regarding the response to the the tragic uh, killing uh, in uh, Minnesota, is it? Uh, and yes. the um, response there, too. And why don't we just start with some of your thoughts on what's going on and, and dovetail that, uh, if you want, with what has happened to free speech relative to Tom Cotton. Yeah, so um, so I, I would say, say broadly... I don't. I don't know anyone. Well, that's not true. Apparently, there's some fringe people out there who are claiming that the uh, the the death was associated with some sort of you know conspiracy or whatever. But right. outside of those fringe, everybody else looks at it and says, you know, I, you know, my heart breaks because this is a this is a guy represent a government right who who has police powers who's got an obligation. To protect, right? Protect and serve. Indeed, that, that's what they do. And and instead, he is he's being brutal. So there's, you know, it's real clear 
You can look at it. You, you can say there was clearly police brutality. I don't know how high. I don't know whether it's murder. I don't know what. You know that that all will be will be proven. But the little bit that you can see, you can you know it's police brutality. Indeed. Um, and and it, it's not the only thing. It's not the only case of that out there. It's, it, it you know when we got a, a big world and everybody's got got telephones with cameras, you, you get the opportunity to see it and and see it all too often. So, you know, clearly it's a, it's a problem. Now, what I would say is um, I don't think it's more of a problem today than it was 10 years ago. I just think it's more in your face today than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, I think that we're, you know, we, we've got to do a better job of, of training law enforcement and law enforcement has to do a better job. Having said all that, I would say, you know, that's that's the one percent of law enforcement. Like law enforcement, they, you know, they they're not perfect. You know, they're 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 men and women with their with their limitations. Although I'd say most of them do an exceptional job, are very disciplined, are kind, are are professional when you're dealing with them. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that I think it's important to keep that in 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 context. It, it's not acceptable what's happened. But at the same time, it it isn't something that is so pervasive that uh, that people should not feel safe on the streets around law enforcement, or that law enforcement should be, be defunded. Which, you know, just the that idea. Like there, there, I'm one of the guys that feels like most government functions is illegitimate. Like there's only a few things that government should be doing. But governments are instituted in order to protect rights. Police powers is one of the few limited, uh, you know, legitimate functions of state government in my mind. Indeed. Now, um, so so I, I feel like we, you know, we, we've had a um, we've had a reaction to that uh, where people are getting out and protesting and speaking. And even if I feel like maybe that that's a overreaction, like maybe they're they're looking at this incident and and thinking it's more pervasive than it is. I still absolutely support their right. Right, that it is their First Amendment right. To go out and and protest, to to you know, bring their their objections to their their government officials to the public, um, you know I'm I'm a hundred percent I'd go to go to war to fight the, for their right to to uh, to speak. Now, as soon as they get to the point where they're destroying other people's property, now they're using their right in such a matter to hurt somebody else, and their right ends with other person's um, right begins. Right. That's right. So. So at that point, then they become criminals, and and I've, like I've said, I'm no longer going to listen to you. Sorry, whatever you have to say, I don't want to hear it. I want to hear the voice of the person who says, "No, we're not going to destroy property. We're going to be more like Martin Luther King and do peaceful noncompliance." That's that's the voice that I'm I'm willing to to listen to, even if I don't agree with it. Um, and then, so the, you know, segueing into what happened in New York Times. You know, New York Times, uh, you know, to their credit, ran an, an article that was absolutely opposed to, uh, or presented an opposing viewpoint of, you know, 98 percent of the people who've ever written for New York, or at least written for New York Times in the last 20 years. Right. It's, uh, That's right. You know, the, the, the point of view was was definitely in opposition to what the, the paper's point of view. But they ran it because, you know, used to a liberal was willing to have opposing ideas be presented. Um, but that's not the new left. The the new left is is absolutely opposed to that. And so when this you know conservative had his ideas shared on on New York Times, they freaked out and and was ready to burn the place down. 
And so they went, changed their policy when it comes to um, opinion pieces, and they, they, uh, you know, made it clear that they're they don't ever intend on doing that again. And and so you know, when it comes to free speech, right? You know, I I, I would not say that I would not say that the that Tom Cotton if they if they pulled that article if they refused to ever run another article from from a conservative, I wouldn't say that the that an individual's First Amendment rights are violated, right? Because sure. this is a private entity, the paper, you know, even though there are arguments that newspapers do get funded or uh, subsidized by, by state publication requirements and a bunch of other things. Sure. In the end, it's a private entity. It should have the right to decide what it's going to do. But, but we as citizens need to, need to mark that. That these that they are there presenting an, a, a point of view, and that's their agenda, and that you can be assured that there's one point of view that's going to be purged from that paper. I mean, nobody gets shocked when when Arkansas Times runs something that is is you know slanted to the left, right, or extreme exactly. left, because we know it's an extreme left paper, right? You mark that's right. It, you know it. That's you know, right. They're not going to run Tom Cotton's op-eds either. So, <clears throat> so I, I think that this is just. <laughs> I think this is just revealing where New York Times is going. It's really tragic. I th- you've done a wonderful job, Bob, of summarizing the events and the related legal concepts here, because it's really remarkable how the left, who deserves credit, mind you, 60 years ago, for bringing the free speech movement forward, for really establishing the modern understanding of free speech in the Constitution, uh, how they have entirely abandoned, or their descendants, perhaps, it's not they're not around anymore, but their descendants have abandoned their heritage uh, by embodying a concept of free speech, which is, well, we'll allow anybody who's left to debate with those who are ultra left. But other than that, we don't want to hear it. We heard this, yeah. uh, right? We heard this on um, uh, Meet the Press where uh, Chuck Todd said, well, we're not going to have folks that talk about this or that, whatever it was, uh, because uh, that's not real. That's not right. real. I think it was about climate science. And we're not going to have anti-climate science folks come in and talk because that's not real. Right. By the way, I believe that man uh, affects climate. How could man not affect climate? What do we have, 7 billion people on the planet? But, yeah, right. uh, man affects a lot of things, and some of it is the world's going to change <clears throat> because humans populate the planet. Uh, and we're going to have to deal with it, but we're not going to stop that from occurring. And the left right. seems unwilling to accept that basic notion. Uh, and right. right. And so regardless of what your position is on science, by the way, I love how the left uh, calls conservatives anti-science when it comes to climate science. Uh, but when it comes to biology, uh, uh, also known as abortion rights, uh, uh, and that's the left term, to be clear, um, uh, yeah. there is no science involved, right? Because there's nothing there, nothing to see here. Move along, move along in Star Trek terms, uh, Star Wars terms, right? <laughs> right. It, it, it's really remarkable. Um, I want to continue to have this conversation uh, specifically about the First Amendment, uh, specifically about the broader notion what is the difference between First Amendment and the notion of free speech, the morality 
of free speech. Uh, but Heidi, let's um, let's start to prepare for a break now, uh, and I'll just give a quick teaser on this um, on this issue, and that is. It's one thing to have a First Amendment right. The First Amendment protects individuals from the government interfering with what you say. But not private parties, uh, like Bob, uh, who knows the law well, points out. When a private party hires you for a job, they can tell you to say something or not say something, and your recourse is to leave the job, or their recourse is to fire you. But you don't have a right against them, because the First Amendment is a right against government interference with free speech. But the left original ideology, when it came to free speech, was more speech is better. If you disagree with someone... Talk to that person, talk about that person, talk with that person, and have a conversation, and the truth shall come out. But the left doesn't like that anymore. So with that thought, Heidi, why don't we go to our uh, break now, and we will come back uh, and continue uh, till the top of the hour with State Senator Bob Ballinger. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck. On the line with us right now are Chris Corbett. And State Senator Bob Ballinger, we're going to come back to you, Bob, because we only have you till the top of the hour. Bob, before we get back into our substantive discussion, just briefly for the audience, because you know that Dave has listeners not only throughout the state, throughout the country. Remind us where your district, if that's I think that's the right term, is and where you are also uh, chronologically in your term as a state senator. Sure. So um, my Senate district for people who are not real familiar with with Arkansas, the easiest way is it's almost all the rural part of northwest Arkansas, um, outside of Benton and Washington County. And I actually have a little bit, I have a little bit a, of Washington County that uh, goes from West Fork South. So um, I have parts of seven counties, parts of Johnson, Franklin, um, all of Madison, Carroll County, Sebastian County, most of Crawford County. So it's it is a lot of rocks and hills and sticks and good people scattered out over a bunch of a bunch of territory. That's fantastic. And where are you now? What what year are you in your state senate term? And how long is the state senate? What is it? Four years in Arkansas? Yeah. So that's right. So we get four year terms. Um, you know, I, I was in the house. We'd have to run every two years. Mm-hmm. Now we we run every four years. So this November I won't be on the ballot. Then I'll be back on the ballot again in two more years. In two more years, yeah. And what about what about uh, rather than running for state senate, running for attorney general? Have you have you made a decision on that? An issue I've been pushing. <laughs> well, this is the thing: is that it, it, there is another candidate who's looking at at running. Is somebody I really respect and really like. And I've never been the the, the person that has, wants to ask for any office. I want to make sure that I'm I'm called, and so as long as that other guy is running, I'm probably going to be okay. And and I'll run for my Senate seat and, and wait for later. But you know, if he doesn't run, I'll definitely consider it and entertain it. Well, you can give me off air his name, and uh, we'll we'll go um, paper towel or toilet paper's house until he decides otherwise. But nonetheless, I, I hope you uh, consider uh, running uh, for AG. I think you would be uh, an excellent candidate uh, and an excellent, more importantly, excellent AG. But in any event, so we okay. talked a little bit about politics. We should always talk a little bit about politics when we talk to people who are elected officials. It's part of the process after all. Uh, but 
We also talk a lot of substance on the Dave Ellswick Show, and we talk a lot of substance with the only practicing attorney in, uh, only pa- practicing Republican attorney in the Arkansas Senate. Well, and let, let me let me correct that, Rob. Okay. Since we, you know, that that used to be true, but ah. the trend is out there practicing now as an attorney. So, oh well, there you go. Uh, there yep, you go. He is, he is, yeah, he's, he's he's going to work using the license that he, he um, earned. So. Oh well, fantastic. Anyway, so now there's two of us. Well, so one of two practicing attorneys in the Arkansas State Senate. Bob, we've been talking about all of these free speech issues that surround. Uh, this abominable behavior by the New York Times. And as you, of course, recall, you were on a bill last session that would have strengthened free speech rights for Arkansans who work for uh, state and local government. And the notion was, quite simply, that the First Amendment is very narrow even in how it protects individuals when they are government uh, relative to the government when they are government employees because if you work for the government the notions uh, found in the first amendment are limited not eliminated but limited so says the supreme court now mind you i disagree with some of those interpretations of the supreme court but nobody's asking me they got nine (laughs) folks up there in dc and they're making the calls Uh, and so you uh and kim hammer uh i believe were co-sponsors on a very simple and wonderful bill that i helped on i will uh uh, happily uh, admit that simply said look if you're at home on your facebook on your insta post i know i'm butchering it intentionally uh, on your Twitter <laughs> Graham uh, and you write something uh, at night in your footsie pajamas some mid-level unelected uh, almost invariably uh, left-wing bureau hack uh, is not entitled to fire you and you might say uh, not you but one might think well doesn't the First Amendment protect that no no, often it does not. Uh, and there's a whole nuanced analysis that the Supreme Court created out of whole cloth, uh, much sim- you know, similar to what they did in many cases like Roe versus Wade, inventing law, not interpreting law, inventing law, that they invented regarding the First Amendment. And so uh, I would like you to talk about these notions reflected in that bill. I mean, you can talk about the bill, but, or, or you don't have to talk about the bill, but that broader notion, how you have always been someone who's freedom-loving and want to restrict the ability of government, be it as government as it interacts with the average citizen or government as it interacts with its employees uh, relative to their rights. Say a few words on that, if you will. Sure. Well, first, I just want to want to clarify that, you know, Kim and I was just carrying your water. We were just (laughs) what we were told. Well, I'm happy to take the credit, even though it's not well due. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so this is the thing is you do run into a, a little bit of a different dynamic. I am 100 percent clear on how to handle a situation where people are standing on a standing on a sidewalk, expressing their ideas, and a government actor goes in to try to shut them down. Right? That's that's easy. That's right. You know, I think the inalienable right to speech that protected by the First Amendment is being violated. Government has no business there. Now, when government is is also the employer, right? Because right. if it's in a private sector employee uh, employer relationship, just like you pointed out earlier, we would say government shouldn't be coming in forcing the employer 
to and you know and to motivate contracts and all that kind of stuff in right. order to allow a person you know if, if someone goes home and posts a bunch of crazy stuff on their on their facebook page and the employer no longer wants them as long as they're not under a contract they should have the ability to do it right. now when it comes to government as the employer now all of a sudden it, it, you know as the legislator you know it's something that we get to decide what we want as policy how That's strong right. do we want to protect their their ability to speak and express ideas and so that was the idea of our legislation is even if it's not protected by the first amendment and even if it now it's morphed into this other area where there is a negotiated contract an agreement between the two where a person has the right to yield some of their rights in order to engage in that employment setting well how far do we want to allow them to be able to go to express their ideas that's right um and so and and we were what we were doing was moving the pendulum over further for them to have more ability to express their ideas without being terminated um and you know coming from your perspective living in the world of of academia where you find yourself lonely on your ideas (laughs) often i can imagine it being something that's really important to you but at at the same time i also wouldn't want to wouldn't want to go too far that we're that where you know you could have a state employee who is out there you know expressing ideas that are are really offensive to now let me say i've expressed lots of ideas that's offensive to a lot of people i may not be qualified to be a state employee but that are that are really offensive to the system so i think of the uh the professor in colorado that said america got what he what it deserved in 9-11 right Right. Um, I, I, well, I, I do think that professor probably should have had a right to do that. Let's say instead of being a professor, he's a deputy director at DHS, and he's out expressing those ideas. Right. Well, at that point, you're not only making, you know, as a professor, it's almost understood and, and you know, that you're going to have some radical views. But when you're the deputy director of DHS, now now you are you are demonstrating um and and impacting the whole administration by virtue of of the comments that you're making on social media and so so it'd be important that we create a balance but i would say let's move the pendulum over further to allow them more leeway to express their ideas well and that's what's wonderful Uh, i mean this sincerely bob about the fact that you are, let me be clear, one of two practicing attorneys on the Republican side in the Arkansas State Senate, because you understand, you have a sophisticated understanding of these important notions. I'm not saying non-lawyers don't. In fact, I work with a lot of non-lawyer legislators who do, but you provide an additional resource, and, and you not only do so in helping to write legislation you do so in advising other state senators and state representatives that's why we are so lucky to have you in office and we are looking forward to the day hopefully in the next election but whatever it may be when you run for attorney general bob thanks for joining us we're going to take a break now and we'll be back with chris corbett Elsewhere! Elsewhere! 
Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave uh, this Monday morning, 8.07 it is. We have on the line, as we've had for some time now, Chris Corbett, uh, local attorney. By local, I mean uh, Arkansas uh, attorney as well as professional engineer. Uh, It's a very rare combination. I mean that sincerely. Chris, we just, as you know, finished a very good conversation with Bob Ballinger uh, I, I do hope he runs for attorney general uh, at the next opportunity, in part because of his reluctance. I like reluctant oh. politicians. Yeah. They, it's they, fantastic sitting there listening to him, Rob. Yeah. I, let me say, I'm, I was sitting there listening to him, and I was thinking, pragmatism without the dogmatism. That's what I was. That's what I was hearing. Right. Right. He wasn't dogmatic about what he was saying. He wasn't saying this is an uh, inconvertible truth. He was analyzing the issues and um, talking about free speech and New York Times v. Sullivan and and how the how the laws can deal with it. And I thought it was fantastic. And I thought y'all were leading into a a discussion which I think is headed to the forefront is this qualified immunity. Um, and you're talking about defunding the Minneapolis police. The way you defund it is you sue the fire out of the, the police, right? Well, that and it points out then, why we need to, in Arkansas, get rid of, the, the legislature has already talked about this, getting rid right. of this notion of sovereign immunity. Well, that is that the oh, state man. can't be sued. And then people say, well, you know, right. we don't want the state to be sued because it comes out of tax dollars. Well, whatever right. might come out of tax dollars goes to pay an injured Arkansan who was injured by state activity. And more importantly than that one individual who is compensated uh, and that compensation uh, won't have a significant impact generally on the state coffers in any event. More importantly, it actually saves the money government. And here's how it saves the money government, because it stops the government from hiring people or continuing with people who do really bad things. And when you have people who do really bad things, it, in the end, not even as a a function of litigation, but just as a function of productivity, uh, reduces uh, the the coffers and efficiency of the state. So we are better off financially and otherwise. When we eliminate you're this. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're so right on it, Rob. And what the general public does not know about sovereign immunity and qualified immunity is that these are not only defenses to liability, they are defenses to stand trial. You can't even get your day in court. Yeah, that's right. The government gets to plead qualified man. Let me explain that for a minute to the general public. You literally, if you file, let's just say that when they, when the family of George Floyd files suit, um, this is civilly, not criminally. Of course, the, the, the officers have been criminally charged. But when the city decides to file suit against the Minneapolis Police Department, um, they're going to file a motion for summary judgment. And most, and that's a, they don't even get to trial. This is before discovery. This is saying that you can't go to trial because we have qualified immunity. Now, I think they will. I think the family of George Floyd will win that, saying that. Uh, I think it goes back to some cases, Saucier, or well, I like to say Saucier, but it goes back to some cases that I remember. And the exception to qualified immunity and sovereign immunity is malice, but it's a high bar, right? That's right. You have to prove that you had intent to hurt somebody or to prove that you had this um, uh, malice forethought that you were, uh, you used your government power 
not as part of your job function, but you use you use the government power to hurt somebody, and you did it with intent. Um, so it's a it's a high bar, and I think that's where we're going next with this. Um, looking at some of the laws and um, qualified immunity, and um, and you know just with this whole irony of New York Times and publishing the op-ed of Tom Cotton, and looking back at the New York Times to be Sullivan, that had to do with malice, right, Mr. Sullivan. I have to remind. I have to look it up again. Mr. Sullivan was running an ad to raise money for MLK, I believe, right? Matt Martin Luther King, and um, he didn't like. So Mr. Sullivan didn't like how he was portrayed in New York Times. He got a judgment for half a million dollars. Or I forget how much money it was. A bunch of money um, when he sued the New York Times because they, he thought the New York Times libeled him, made him look bad, false light. The you know, Supreme Court overturned it. Right? right. That's a good thing. We want the free speech, but with the free speech comes this 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 inability to make the government pay. The qualified immunity is there. Sovereign immunity is there. You br- you bring uh, out a, a related interesting point, which is the free speech yes. of uh, the New York Times uh, suing right. uh, when they sued on uh, Sullivan v. Uh, Times when they were sued, yeah. whatever the case may be. Uh, right, right. Th- they want to be able to express their views. Uh, without sanction, uh, but publishing Tom Cotton's views apparently is not worthy uh, of their right. uh, their venue. This, of course, being yeah. a U.S. senator who represents uh, the state of Arkansas and whose views are concordant with uh, those of a majority of Americans, and yet That's the right. New York Times deems it impermissible. Let um, well, actually, before we get back to the op-ed, because I do want to get back to it, we've only—I yeah. think we've gotten through a little over half of it. So we talked with Bob Ballinger, as you know, uh, about his political goals, his uh, and where he stands right now. Uh, and I wanted to talk with you briefly about yours. I know you have not made a decision yet, but I know you're considering running for state senate. Uh, up there in Conway, where you live, uh, for I the am. seat that's currently held by uh, Senator Jason Rapert. Uh, and uh, Jason is, um, uh, I believe he's term limited out uh, from the Senate. Uh, and he uh, may run for another office. Uh, but I- in the meantime, that is going to be an open, as I understand it, state Senate seat. Uh, not this coming November, of course, but the following election, because as you know, uh, those elections right. are staggered as they are federally as well. Uh, and that's to create a level of continuity in contrast to the House that changes every two years, both state and federally. So uh, obviously, as I just mentioned, you haven't yet made a decision to run, but I know you are actively considering it. So talk with us briefly about that and what you uh, want to do. Uh, I know you want to do these things, meaning whether or not you run for the position, right. what you would seek to do if you were to run for it, because that that you have goals are indisputed, undisputed, uh, that you're going to right. pursue those uh, policy goals uh, through running for office. This time for that position is not... Um, uh, decided yet, although you're seriously considering it, meaning that there is a strong inclination in that regard. So talk to us about your policy goals, what you see as important for our Kansans. Us? Yeah, sure. And then this is what, so what started this, the seed that started my thoughts for running for state Senate here in Conway is 
government government being out of control. And what I mean by that is that they've take, taken a statute or an ordinance, and then they make up their own law. And I, I see these things in the law, and I wonder how in the world does something like it this like this get passed? Um, and there's so many examples. I, just, I've spat off a few of them. Uh, Little Rock School District needed school teachers, right? Right. So they put out an ad saying um, Little Rock school teachers are going to strike. Um, we're going to need we're going to need school teachers. All right. So a thousand people went down there and applied. The first thing they did is they charged these uh, folks a fee of fifty dollars to do a background check. Amazing. Hold up. Wait a minute. You're you're applying for a government job, Little Rock School District, but you have to pay a fee fifty dollars to go to another government entity and have a background check done. Why are we? Where is this fee coming from? It's like a poll tax, by the way. It's like a poll tax, right? People object correctly. Well, you can't be required to pay to vote. Well, you can't be required to pay to apply for a government job either. That's right. It's outrageous, Rob. That's just the beginning of it. I have a, I have a, a, Jeep, a Jeep. It's a 91 Jeep. Uh, I've also got a 94 truck. I like to keep old vehicles around. I went down to get me an antique plate. This may, be a, may not be a big deal, but uh, they, they recently changed the law. Your, your car is no longer antique. It's got to be 45 years old. Versus 25 years old. Which is almost non-existent, right? Now now what yeah, you've done I mean, is you've basically not made it antique. You've made it a, a diamond. You, you know, you're driving a diamond that you dug up, up out of the ground because it's so rare. That's right. That's right. Now, I, I heard some rumblings about a senator or a legislator saying, oh, I saw a car rolling down the road and he's driving it as his normal car. And we wanted – that was not the intent of the law. Hold up. Wait a minute. These laws are promoted – uh, they're passed within weeks, and there's no real discourse on why or how this this law got passed. And um, and talking to a, a senator uh, not long ago about the the, uh, the fee to appeal a case, right? Well, it's going to be to appeal a case in circuit court. There's a per page fee in this day and age when it's all electronic. How is it's two dollars and fifty cents? By the way, the first thousand pages and just to be clear uh, just to be clear that's not actually a a reflection of what the law says and you're going to file we are you and i are filing uh, a a brief on that a motion on that shortly because it actually is not a reflection of the law and it's another example of government acting outside the scope of the law that's right, but the, but the law. So can I, I can litigate the law right. in the judicial branch as an attorney. But how do I get? How do I help get this law taken care of before it becomes law? Right. So, for example, to to appeal uh, in our case, two hundred and fifty pages. It's going to be eight hundred dollars. Eight hundred dollars to file an appeal. Two hundred and fifty pages. Right. When it literally it takes fifteen minutes compile this in a digital document 15 right. minutes That's right and, a, and your court reporter is a state employee and um, paid already uh, it takes yeah already paid as a state employee yet they're charging thirty two hundred dollars an hour court clerk to prepare not, not reporter by the way or clerk yeah right court clerk and and so it's a so these little laws that slip under the radar these little tax we're getting taxed to death by fees and um how do we control that we got to have someone uh, that that knows what's going on in the judicial branch. We're going to have someone that can look at these things that's litigated them. Um, I've litigated sovereign immunity. I lost because I didn't. My, my client, a professional engineer, was getting beat up by uh, the Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality, and we lost at the Supreme, uh, Arkansas Supreme Court because 
what a uh, um, um, a landfill inspector did was not considered malice. The state had sovereign immunity. He had qualified immunity. We didn't even get to trial. The right. case was over. Um, they basically put the put the registered professional engineer out of business. It was uh, his name was Shaki Almadoun, and um, we had an email on point stating that they're going to chew this guy up in the state machine and run it run all his clients away because you'll never get a a landfill design approved. So these are the kind of things that my my career over the last twenty years have progressed me and looking at some of these things saying, whoa, where, where can I, how can I serve my clients better? How can I serve the public? And so that's some of the things I'll be looking at. Well, is, it's uh, wonderful, Chris. Please. I, 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 I yeah. really, I really hope you run, you make that decision to run and you can leverage, you can magnify uh, the ability right. that you currently have as an attorney uh, to address these wrongs uh, for individuals. And so you won't have to do it on an individual basis. You can do it on a collective basis and you would be an outstanding representative uh, for the district that encompasses uh, Conway and certain other areas up there. Uh, and uh, of course, there's going to be some redistrict- redistricting. Uh, yeah, I don't think. Census. Yeah. Yeah, the census is coming out 2020. They're going to re- redraw some lines. Right. right? You, you still are going to live so somewhere exactly. in the middle of. Go ahead. Right. It's not going to be Rayford's district. They're going to redraw the lines. Well, it's not going to be anybody's district, right? Right, exactly. uh, Hold that thought. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back uh, right after these messages. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. It is 824 and a half or so. Chris Corbett's on the line with us. Chris, let's get back to the Tom Cotton op-ed that we have been dissecting throughout this show. Uh, And hopefully uh, in the future, uh, as we dissect these things, uh, we will be able to do so with you uh, as a Arkansas state senator. But we'll get back to that point much later on. (laughs) Right. So we were talking, Tom Cotton wrote about a law called the Insurrection Act, which allows the federal government to bring in a law enforcement and uh, troops, I believe, um, like National Guard troops, uh, when there right. are um, cases of insurrection or other obstruction uh, to the laws. And, of course, rioting uh, and all of the mayhem that's been going on fits that definition. That's, that's clear. Right. That, that there can be no dispute about. So Cotton goes on to say, This venerable law, nearly as old as our republic itself, doesn't amount to, quote, martial law, end quote, or the end of democracy, as some excitable critics ignorant of both the law and our history have comically suggested. That's indeed true. I mean, that's uh, indisputable, right? In fact, the federal government, says Cotton, has a constitutional duty to the states uh, to protect each of them from domestic violence. Through our history, presidents have exercised this authority, as you pointed out, Chris, by the way, on dozens of occasions to protect law-abiding citizens from disorder, nor does it violate the Posse Comitatus Act, which constrains, constrains rather the military's role in law enforcement, but expressly accepts statutes such as the Insurrection Act. It would right, really be perverse, right. would it not, Chris, if you had a, a National Guard that you couldn't use to protect the nation? Oh, it's outrageous. I mean, the way that when I first saw this and thought, okay, let me think about it. Let me, let me take five minutes. Let me think about this for a minute, right? Um, so so the president can federalize or nationalize the the National Guard, right? The state guard, the Arkansas National Guard. 
And that's essentially what, what would happen. And then um, he can order those troops to do what needs to be done to protect property and citizens in the United States. Indeed. Um, As you mentioned, Chris, the next paragraph in the op-ed reads, for instance, during the 50s and 60s, President Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson called out the military to disperse mobs that prevented school desegregation or threatened innocent lives and property. So that's exactly the point that you've raised historically. Cotton goes on to say this happened in my own state. Governor Orville Faubus, a racist Democrat, mobilized our National Guard in 1957 to obstruct desegregation at Little Rock Central High School. Of course, here right in Little Rock. Uh, President Eisenhower federalized the Guard and called in the 101st Airborne in response. The failure to do so, he said, would be tantamount to acquiescence in anarchy. Uh, He goes on for a few more examples. Uh, Cotton does. More recently, yeah. President George Bush, as you said, uh, uh, ordered the Army's 7th Infantry, the first George Bush, by the way, and 1,500 Marines to protect L.A. during race riots in 92. He acknowledged his disgust at Rodney King's treatment. Quote, what I saw made me sick, end quote. But he knew deadly rioting would only multiply the victims of all races and from all walks of life. It's exactly the point that you're raising. It is. Go ahead. It is. And so let me let me make a, uh, an analogy here. Yeah. Uh, if you have a duty to act and you do nothing and somebody's harmed, then you're in trouble, right? If you That's have right. a duty to act and somebody's somebody gets harmed. So what they're going to be litigating in the George Foy case, and I'm talking about these other officers, not Chauvin, the guy with the knee on his neck. He obviously did something wrong, right? Right. But what about these other guys, uh, Tao Fowl, that was standing by and, and chose to do nothing? He had the power to do something. He had the power to walk over to his fellow police officer, grab him by the back of the neck, uh, and look at him and say, hey, the guy's not moving, right? Get in his face. Now, let's say he had that power. Now, Let's let's make that analogy to Trump. He's got the power to federalize the troops and prevent harm. I think this is a good analogy. If he does, if he sits by and does nothing, is he does, does President Trump have a legal duty to do something, a moral duty to do something, or an ethical duty? Somewhere in one of those three areas, Trump's got the legal, ethical, maybe moral duty to to protect the citizens, and so it's a. It's a great analogy in my mind that uh, when you look at who has, like, for example, uh, who has the duty, right? The president has the duty. He can mobilize the troops. I can't. I don't have a duty to mobilize 1,500 Marines and send them into Los Angeles. Um, But President Bush did. Now, does that come with a risk? Man, there is a big risk there. You may have an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old with a loaded M16. Right, fully automatic weapon, and if he's in danger, is he going to use that thing? Maybe. So, could this be another Kent State? I don't know, but there's a risk there. Hold that thought, um, Chris. We're going to take a break. Yeah. We're going to come back, finish up the cotton op-ed, and then talk more about the underlying issues after these messages. 
This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Monday morning. It's around 78 degrees, 835 in the morning. We are in the last half hour of the Dave Ellswick Show. Folks, you will have to survive another 21 hours till you get to hear the Dave Ellswick Show again. I'm sorry that you will have to suffer under that infirmity. But hold on. You still have almost a half hour left to today's show. So that should be all be it some solace to you. Chris, we're talking, as you know well, uh, about the Tom Cotton uh, op-ed. And let me just finish reading it, and then we will continue our conversation, because there's only a little bit uh, left. And I keep waiting for the big reveal. I keep waiting for the controversial section of the op-ed to appear so that we can debate it. We can say, well, even if controversial, uh, I support it or not, perhaps, by the way. I don't support everything that every Republican says. Absolutely not. Uh, Yet, so far, we haven't even seen anything particularly controversial. Is the notion that you would use federal authority when need be as has been demonstrated on numerous occasions in the past, to quell violence. Violence? That's controversial? It can't be. By the way, it wasn't controversial when it was done previously, right? But we're in a new environment in which the left has gone over the ledge so quickly and deeply that what was normal governmental behavior from moderates and liberals is now considered extreme. The New York Times literally calling Tom Cotton a fascist through their op, one of their op-ed editors. Uh, let me finish it up. So Tom Cotton continues. Not surprisingly, public opinion is on the side of law enforcement and law and order, not insurrectionists. According to a recent poll, 58% of registered voters, including nearly half of Democrats and 30% of African Americans would support cities calling in the military to address protests and demonstrations that are in response to the death of George Floyd. That opinion may not appear often in chic salons, but widespread support for it is fact nonetheless. The American people aren't blind to the injustices in our society, but they know the most basic Responsibility of government is to maintain public order and safety. In normal times, local law enforcement can uphold public order. But in rare moments, like ours today, more is needed, even if many politicians prefer to wring their hands while the country burns. Isn't that remarkable how unremarkable that op-ed is? Hell yeah. It, 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 you're, exactly. What's remarkable is is the the term fascist being thrown out there with a United States senator. Exactly. That, that's what's remarkable. Exactly. Uh, we don't have to look very far back in history to understand really what fascism is and to see where that goes. <laughs> Writing a letter about protecting property and protecting citizens is in no way fascist. Exactly. It's outrageous. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's simply outrageous that the New York Times would come out with another op-ed calling United States Senator Tom Cotton, an Army Ranger, Harvard graduate, Harvard Law graduate, a fascist. Police! Exactly. Somebody stand up and tell the New York Times that, that that's nowhere near true. Let's see. Um, Let me add to that, Chris, uh, your sound comments. So here now appearing before the op-ed is a, quote, editor's note, Uh, And it says as follows, 
from the New York Times. I'll try to get through it quickly because, you know, when, right, when, right. When, when you step in a pile on the street, you get over to the grass yeah. and you wipe your foot clean as quickly as possible. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I suspect that uh, Dave's listeners understand my analogy quite well. Uh, so here's what the New York Times says. After publication, this essay met strong criticism from many readers and many Times colleagues. Yeah, okay. By the way, a lot of the nonsense that you guys write on your editorial page uh, is subject to strong criticism from many, including me. Uh, Times goes on, prompting editors to review the piece and the editing process. This is really what's insidious. Oh, well, people didn't like it, so we decided we're going to go back and look it over because we don't want them to be unhappy. Not because there's something wrong with the substance. Now, they're not saying that, but they're saying that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think when I one 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 um, when I first tried to find the article, it said it violated the New York Times standard of care. Yeah, yeah, what, is that what amazing? Standard, what standard of care? Yeah, yeah. protecting United States property, protecting United States citizens yeah. from criminals. No, from <laughs> handing out leftist uh, ideology all the time. And not accepting the notion that conservatives have different views accepted by a majority of the country. That's what they mean. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The the one the one op ed I read, Rob, I had to quit reading it. They were comparing United States Senators Tom Cotton's words to dictators. Yeah. yeah. I was like, wait, what? Wait, what? I can't. You know, no. it's just it's such I, I facile logic. Yeah. Did you and, know, by um, the way, apparently uh, Hitler was a, a vegetarian. Now, that doesn't make all vegetarians Nazis. Right. Like, they, so, oh, uh, right. you know, Tom Cotton used the word the and so did a fascist. So Tom Cotton must be a fascist. So says the New York Times, of course. Uh, that's yeah. at least a, yeah. a mocking of their logic. Uh, no, yeah. no. There's lots of words well, and phrases used by good people and bad people because it's English. Uh, the Times goes right. on, by the way, and says, based on that review, we have concluded that the essay fell short of our standards and should not have been published. That's exactly the point. There that, you go. What standards? What standards? They go on. The basic arguments what advanced standards? by Senator Comp. Cotton, however objectionable people might find them, represent a newsworthy part of the current debate. Agreed. Agreed. But, wait for it, wait for it, but, given the life and death importance of the topic, the senator's influential influential position and the gravity of the steps he advocates, mm, wait, what? That's a lot of the stuff you talk about. The essay should have undergone the highest level of scrutiny. Okay. But I don't care about the level of scrutiny uh, at your Bureau Hack organization. I care about the outcome. So the process that whether or not you had more of your left-leaning Bureau Hacks uh, who are concerned about the delicate daisies uh, uh, being offended uh, is not important to me. What's important to me is the substance. So they go on. Instead, the editing process was rushed and flawed. Again, internal um, uh, inside baseball nonsense. And uh, uh, and senior editors were not sufficient, sufficiently involved. All oh, right, because the senior editors who are not the 19-year-olds largely running the New York Times would have had a lot better judgment, I guess. Right. While Senator. Exactly. Right. Senator Cotton and his staff. This is the New York Times and his staff cooperated fully in our editing process. Of course they did. The op ed should have been subject to further substantial revisions, as is frequently the case with such essays or rejected. Wait, what? Why? Why? So now they go on. For example, 
The published piece presents as facts uh, assertions about the role of cadres of left-wing radicals like Antifa. In fact, those allegations have not been substantiated and have been widely questioned. By whom? By whom? It's just such rubbish. Antifa has been actively involved in the violent insurrection. That is fact. It has been well reported. If you want to dispute that fact, well, you go out and you publish an article uh, substantiating that uh, the the underlying facts. But the facts so far, as presented by the media, support that contention. You just don't like that contention. That's the difference. That's right. Uh, That's right. Well, there's there's something going on when. I, I, I'm skeptical of what I see on the news, but I see a pallet of brick um, laid out on the laid out on the public street, right, for folks to pick up and throw. Right. Wait, wait a minute. Who bought the pallet of brick? Right. Who delivered the pallet of brick? I'm like, wait a minute. Is that now? Is that trying to um, just uh, upset folks with with some news reporting, trying to get eyeballs so they can sell advertising? Right. I, I don't know, but something something's not right. That's right. That's right. When, if you're throwing bricks, if you're throwing bricks, okay, that's yeah. That's how well, how many different opinions you can have, right? Yeah. What what, what are the what, what are the uh, contrary opinions to don't throw bricks? Exactly. And we and now should we should can we listen to it? Okay. Yeah. So you need to throw a brick to get to be heard. Man, I don't think so. Exactly. Um, it ain't right. So it's the, um. The Times goes on, Chris, the Times goes on to say editors should have sought further corroboration of those assertions or remove them from the piece. By the way, don't you watch that, that sleight of hand. Watch that yeah. uh, palming of the coin. Slick. They give one factual assertion with which they take issue incorrectly and then they refer to numerous ones that they think are mistaken without ever detailing any of the others. So the best one, the best one that they can find is the one well substantiated that Antifa has been involved in this violent insurrection, this violent unrest. And that's the best they can find. They're wrong. That's well substantiated. They're free to give evidence to the contrary. But that is not even a debatable fact. And they give no others and then say, Broadly, oh, well, the facts needed to be better fact-checked. Hmm. And they go on to say, yeah. the, the assertion that police officers bore the brunt of the violence is an overstatement that should have been challenged. Really? Who bore the brunt of the violence? Who else was on Man. the street? It was the protesters. It. it was the police. That's it. That's it. Most people are sheltering in place. Who bore oh, the yeah. brunt? That should have been challenged. To what end? Yeah. What is your contrary yeah, and, and, fact? <laughs> yeah. And so we need to challenge President Eisenhower's quote that that doing nothing would be tantamount to acquiescence and anarchy. Let's break that down a little bit. President Eisenhower had a duty to act. What he's saying there is his failure to act would have been an acquiescence in a- anarchy. That's, it's right there. It's, it, these aren't facts that need to be disputed or um, looked up and, and and see if it abides by the standards of the New York Times. Which is Come their on. own self-selection as to what facts really are. 
The, the Times says, right. this, uh, um, it goes on to say, the essay also included a reference to constitutional duty that was intended as a paraphrase. It should not have been rendered as a quotation. Um, okay. Is that, is that the concern? <laughs> right. The, oh, yeah. Quotation yeah. marks around it. So someone didn't say it. It right. was, oh, uh, okay. Boy. Yeah, you know what? It, it, it may have had a misplaced uh, um, period. There may have been a comma missing, too. That doesn't change yeah. it, right? Yeah. I, I routinely, by yeah. the way, read the New York Times and find typographical errors in it. They yeah. had several years ago cut back on their. Um, copy editing staff, and I think this is a function of that. And okay, yeah. whatever, but it's not doesn't change the meaning of things. Uh, let me just read the last paragraph before we go to a, 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 our last break before the end of the show. Right. A- and the the um, uh, Times says uh, beyond uh, those factual questions, the tone of the the essay in places is needlessly harsh and falls short of the thoughtful approach that advances useful debate. Editors should have offered suggestions to address uh, those problems. Uh, the headline, which was written by the Times, not Cotton, was incendiary and should have not been used. Um, there's one more comment after that. Let me uh, uh, get to that in one second. But here a couple of uh, uh, points to be made. First of all, there is no tone in a written document. Now, this might be excessively particular on my part in the sense that uh, tone is, uh, to some who are not well-versed in the English language, come to mean something else. But to the New York Times, that's quibbling over the words that Tom Cotton used in his op-ed. Uh, the use of tone is just incorrect. So they say, well, the tone was needlessly harsh. No, the substance they believe was needlessly harsh. And that's what's important to note here, folks. When people don't like what other people write, when the New York Times doesn't like the substance of what Tom Cotton said, he said, bring out the federal uh, military and the federal police, if necessary, for this violence. What the New York Times disputes is not, oh, well, it's how he said it. It's a tone, even though there's no such thing as tone in a written document. It's not how he said it. It's what he said. It's what he said (laughs) that the New York Times doesn't like. Sorry, that's the substance of his article. That's the substance of his op-ed that you're disputing. So it's not tone. We dispute the tone. No! You dispute the conservative values, but you don't have the will to say so. And they sum up by saying, finally, we failed to offer appropriate additional context, either in the text or the presentation that could have helped readers place Senator Cotton's views within a larger framework of the debate. Wait, what? So Tom Cotton's op-ed is fascist, according to the New York Times, because the New York Times didn't offer other context by presenting either other op-eds or editorials right. or something else. That's that's yeah. something wrong with the underlying editorial from Tom Cotton, because remember, they're yeah. criticizing his editorial, not how they yeah. situated that editorial. Uh, hold your thoughts, Chris. We're going to go to the last break before okay. we end the show, and then we will come back for our remaining thoughts now. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. It's about seven minutes till nine o'clock. And we are on the line with Chris Corbett. Chris, I read to you the remaining part of the Times commentary on Tom Cotton's op-ed. Right? It's like a funhouse mirror here. We've got an op-ed on an op-ed, basically. So... 
What are your final thoughts? We've got a little over five minutes to finish up our conversation today. What are your final thoughts on this absurd circumstance in which the New York Times has sought to stifle conservative thought under the guise, the fake claim that Tom Cotton was inaccurate, he was not, that he said something incendiary, he did not, uh, or that somehow uh, they failed to do what uh, they were required to do. I don't know, and I don't care. Go ahead. It's outrageous, Rob. So I went back and I reviewed the New York Times v. Sullivan case, the law of the land on free speech and newspapers, right? Right. So this is during the Civil Rights Movement, the New York Times published an ad for, contri- for, for contributing donations to defend Martin Luther King on, a, on perjury charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ad contained several minor factual inaccuracies, um, and the city's public safety commissioner, L.B. Sullivan, Mr. Sullivan of the New York Times v. Sullivan, felt that the criticism of his subordinates reflected on him poorly even though it never mentioned him in the ad. Mm-hmm. He sued the New York Times in state court and won a state court jury awarded him $500,000 in damages. Mm-hmm. And then the New York Times appealed. Mm-hmm. So this so this this newspaper that has special protections um, in in publishing opinions, op-eds right. has decided to to uh, edit out Tom Cotton's ad because people didn't like it. Wait, so let me see. They, let they me sum it. up what you said there, Chris. The New right. York Times right. went to court so that they could say whatever they want to say. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Go. I'm not, right. I, you know, right. take that for the slight hyperbole that is. Meaning they could largely say whatever they want to say in their opinion piece, and they won. The court right. said, yep, yeah. that's what you get to do. You're a newspaper, you get to do that. But when Tom Cotton says what he wants to say, they say, wait a second, slow down. That ain't right. And the, what we know to be the truth is it ain't right in quotes, because, not because it ain't right, not because it's not factual, not because it's not contextual, not because any of the other excuses that they gave in that preamble that I read to you and Dave's audience a moment ago. It ain't right because it doesn't agree with their lefty, woke, liberal, activ- uh, lefty activism. Let me go. not use liberal in that you, context. You got it. Yeah, you got it. Well, and then. And then um, what was fantastic about the irony of this is um, the leader of the of the the liberal wing of the United States Supreme Court, William Brennan, wrote the opinion. Right. Right. Um, And then that they could take these special protections and basically uh, not want to publish a conservative's opinion um, is it's outrageous. Yeah. So they have special protection. They have this huge bubble around them that rebuffs the law, that protects them in what they say, in which they write, etc. And and they do all that. As long as they don't, yeah, as long as they don't do it with malice, right? Right. One of the best, one of my favorite movies with Paul Newman in it is The Absence of Malice. Right. And it goes into this, this, the, the ability of a newspaper to publish things as long as they don't do it with malice. Right. And um, if anybody's interested in watching that movie, it's fantastic. And it'll, it's right on point uh, with what newspapers can publish um, and not get in trouble.
It's really remarkable. I think, you know, yet again, and I mean this sincerely, you have honed in on a critically important uh, hypocrisy that is present here with the New York Times. And it's not only that they don't satisfy the the moral obligation that we understand uh, incumbent upon the media, that is to give... uh, um, a variety of th- opinions to the public so that individuals may make choices for themselves as a general matter that they have law that protects them in that regard, that gives them extra protection in that regard. And yet they seek to uh, quelch and prevent what we have now gone through word by word from Tom Cotton. They seek seek to prevent the introduction of those words to the public, not because they're incendiary, not because they're out of context, not because they're ahistorical or don't comport with fact, all the false claims made by the Times. No, they seek to prevent it and they disclose this. They reveal this unintentionally at the end of their preamble where they say, well, we don't like the tone, even though there's no tone in written words, when they disclose that we don't like what he said. We don't like what he said. And that is not a principle of free speech that the New York Times has stood upon for years and years. No longer it is, as they say, all the news that is fit to print. It's all the news that they see fit to print. And with that, I bid Dave's listeners a good day. And I look forward to talking with you in the future on the Dave Ellsworth Show.